This is the Bridge Church Podcast, an audio ministry of the Bridge Church, a Nazarene community in Oahu, Hawaii. Please visit us in person or check us out online at bridgenaz.org. We hope to hear from you. We hope to see you. God bless. Mahalo. Well, you know, I, I have a hunch that during these days of COVID, during another semi-hard lockdown here in Hawaii, during a week of raging wildfires in California, during a time when Joe Biden secured the Democratic nomination, political joke, some of you just need hope. Some of you just need encouragement. Some of you need a good word. Some of you need good news. And I think this morning that I've got it. Uh, Just a couple of days ago, I heard the best news headline that I've encountered in a while, probably this year. And I wanted to share it with you this morning. Uh, This is exactly what we all need during these difficult days of 2020 that we're living in. The headline was this. Why Tokyo's new transparent public restrooms are a stroke of genius. All right, here's a picture. I want you to see it. Isn't that great? Yes, you heard me right. You can see it there. Transparent public restrooms, transparent porta potties, folks. It's just what we need, isn't it? This is real. This is not a joke. Transparent porta potties are the next big thing. And before you know it, they'll be coming to a ballpark, a carnival, or a construction site, or a concert venue near you. If you think it took a lot of courage to go into a porta potty before, well, think again. These are porta potties that you can see right into from the outside. And to make them more appealing, they're all different types of vibrant colors. So, after you eat your next round of Taco Bell, don't panic. Just look for the next brightly colored box down the street. Isn't 2020 great? It's the year that keeps on giving. Now, if all of this sounds crazy, don't worry about it. You're you're not going to be able to see John on the John. Um, you're, just, just flush that idea. Come on. I'm trying to have a, a little bit of uh, fun, add a little bit of humor to your life during these crazy times. But really, looks are deceiving. When I first encountered this headline and the picture of these transparent toilets, uh, I thought it had to be a joke. Uh, this, this wouldn't be anyone's number one or number two choice for restroom use. Who would actually sit in a see-through porta potty? Right? Well, when I read the full article about it, my perception was changed. This clear restroom isn't what it uh, first appears to be. Uh, it's only clear and see-through until you go inside, and once you lock the door, it's not clear and transparent from the outside anymore. These transparent walls, once you go inside, they turn to a dark color, and they can't be seen through. So when you're taking care of business, nobody can actually see you in there. Why was this designed in the first place? Well, there are a couple of issues, right, with porta potties. The first is it's always a risk to enter one. You never know if it's going to be clean. Uh, with transparent walls, however, you can look to see if it's clean before going in. And two, you never know, especially at night, if someone might be hiding in a porta potty or sleeping in one. So to protect yourself from a dirty relief station and from a porta potty predator, I mean, you have to be brave to hunker down in one of those and lie in wait for somebody. Anyways, now you can see before you enter. 
It's pretty interesting, huh? It's a stroke of genius, indeed. And I'm sharing this because it, for me, illustrates the fact that perception is important. But it's often tricky, too. This week, I went and I got my head lawn mowed. I mean, I asked and I, I paid for a haircut, but it's not what I got. The lady almost scalped me. Um, and before she started, right, as soon as I sat down in the barber's chair, I showed her a photo of my haircut before COVID. She did a good job, and I took a picture so I could use it for future reference. But um, I showed her this picture from back in early March, and I told this Vietnamese lady, I want it just like this. And she usually does a decent job, but this time, man, she seemed like she was in a real hurry, a real rush. And the end result was nothing like the photo that I showed her. Her perception of the haircut in that photo, which I had taken specifically to, to, and used for reference, for, for future use even, um, her husband actually had, and her had, have been doing a good job with the haircut, so I wanted to keep that and use it for present and future reference, but it got tricky. She lawn mowed my head and uh, her perception of that picture was off. But things aren't always as they seem, especially at first, and you know, a lot of times when I'm hiking, all of a sudden, I'll feel a rock in my shoe. And for the next 20 or 30 minutes, I'll try to just live with it, right? I'll wiggle my foot around while I'm hiking and try to move the rock into a different place. And, you know, I'll be complaining uh, about it to whomever is with me. I'll try to put less, less pressure on uh, that part of my foot where the rock is instead of, you know, just taking 30 seconds to take off my shoe, dump it out and move on. But the thing is, is when you're walking like that and you, you have a rock in your shoe, it always, it always feels like a way bigger rock than it actually is when you see it. Uh, you dump it out and there's this tiny little pebble. And you realize in that moment, man, my perception was off. So you and I, all of us, how we perceive things is important. Many times we just don't realize how much we've been trained, right? Either knowingly or not to see things a certain way. We've been primed to see things a certain way. All of our experiences in this life, they shape how we see things. Um, they, they frame how we sense things and make sense of things. And it's, it's why we, we can't just see a transparent porta potty and at first uh, just make sense of what that's all about. We just get this horrid idea. It's why the haircut in the photo ends up looking nothing like the haircut in reality. And it's why the small pebble in our shoe seems like a larger rock than it really is. Many times, our perception of things is simply off. Those who make ads or commercials, they know this and they play on it. Politicians know this and they capitalize on it. They know that we want our perspectives, um, our perceptions, our biases confirmed. I was reading a study this week that, that proved this point. Some social scientists, they had gathered a number of people and they had divided them into two groups. And the experiment they ran was very, very simple. They took the capital letter B and the number 13, which looks like a capital letter B, letter B if you take the three and attach it to the one, right? But the idea was this. Let's show people some texts with either B or 13 and then ask these people who are being tested which one they saw. But let's try to persuade them and see if they'll see one or the other. So the way they did this was by incentivizing or giving a reward for, at one time, 
seeing either the letter B or the number 13. So in one round of trials, they told the participants, if you see the letter B, then drink this freshly squeezed orange juice. But if you see the number 13, then drink this veggie drink made with peas and okra and other kinds of veggies. Well, which one do you think most people saw in that case, B or 13? If you said B, you're right, right? They, that resulted in them drinking the sweet, freshly squeezed orange juice. And then they switched it, right? They changed it up. If you see 13, drink the orange juice. But if you see B, drink the vegetable drink. Guess what most people saw? 13. Because they wanted the orange juice and not the veggie drink. And so again, the point is this. Perception is important. And whether we know it or not, whether we're honest about it or not, and whether we admit it or not, we're all predisposed to see and think about things in a certain way. We frame things based on what we've experienced and what we know. Think back uh, about how you thought about Revelation before we started this series months ago. And my guess is, and I've actually heard this from many of you, that many of you have been primed to think it was about one thing. The impending end of the world, or the impending end of the world battle. Now, however, you've been offered a different perspective, one that sees it as a great and beautiful love story about Jesus getting his bride. You've been primed, perhaps, with all that rapture stuff, the Left Behind series, and the half-baked movies. And that's not surprising, because church culture has biased uh, many to see Revelation that way, the wrong way. And for many, it's been just, you know, out there, too, too difficult to even go near. I've been working really hard to help you see it another way, not scary, but approachable. In fact, today's verses, they're quite funny, or at least they would have been to the ancient hearers. And if there's a punchline in Revelation's story, it's here. And I want to help you see that punchline. Like the transparent porta potties, when you first look at these verses in Revelation and try to see them as maybe humorous, it might be a challenge. But with a little help, I want, uh, I want to aid you in that endeavor this morning. So let's turn to our focal verses for this morning, Revelation 16, 13 to 21. And I'm going to read them in full once and then just walk back through them with some explanation. Here's what the verses say. And I saw out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits as frogs. For they were the spirits of demons making a sign, which proceeded before the kings dwelling in the whole inhabited world to gather them in a battle for the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is the one keeping watch and keeping on his clothing in order that he would not walk naked and see his shame. And he gathered them in the place, called in Hebrew, Mountain of the Hewn. And the seventh, that is the message, seventh messenger, the Holy Spirit, and the seventh emptied his vial upon the air. And a great voice went out of the temple from the throne, saying, It has occurred. And lightnings and sounds and thunders occurred. And a great earthquake occurred. Such as, is not, such as had not occurred from when humankind occurred upon the land. So massive was the earthquake, so great. And it occurred that the great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of wine, of the wine of the anger of his wrath. And every island fled, and mountain a mountain was not found. And a great hail, as a coin, came down out of the sky upon the people. And the people blasphemed 
God out of the plague of hail, because very great was her plague. Okay, so it may be difficult for us, 2,000 years removed, to get the joke here. But the reality is, there's a couple stories behind this story that help give it its humorous bent. So, this may have been like a multi-layered joke for ancient hearers, for ancient folks. Let's walk back through these verses and see what we can discover together. Uh, it may, for us, be kind of like, you know, hearing a joke, not getting it, and then having to have it explained and then realizing, oh, yeah, that was kind of clever. The explanation, in other words, may solely some of the humor uh, that the earliest Christians would have just inherently and intuitively picked up on. But now, at least, we'll be in the know. So if we look at 13 again, it reintroduces us to some of the previous characters. Uh, Satan, the dragon, the beast, that is the first beast, or the sea beast from Revelation 13, representative of Nero, and three, the false prophet, who was the second beast that used signs and deception, namely Nero's successor, Domitian. And while some have suggested uh, these three, they form a sort of unholy trinity or an, trinity or an anti-trinity, I don't actually think that's the case. As I said several weeks ago, when preaching from Revelation 13 about these two beasts, um, and as the false prophet label suggests here, these two emperor beasts contrast with the two testifier elders. Remember, they were the figureheads of um, the church, consisting of one group of the twelve apostles and one group of the twelve tribes um, who, who uh, testify to the truth. But just like these two testifier elders are in league with God, Nero and Domitian are in league with Satan. But it's the second beast, the one that arose from the land, Domitian, that's described as the false prophet here. And this is, I think, an allusion to him being in concert with his imperial court that did false signs and wonders. But we have to remember, as Revelation 13 tells us, that everything Domitian did, he did under the mantle of Nero. So they're closely aligned, and their mission is one mission. Anyhow, these three figures, they have three unclean spirits come out of their mouths. And in um, ancient exorcisms, right, as Carol Rods has noted, spirits would often, during an exorcism, come out of the mouth. But here the spirits are described as frogs. And it's a pretty hilarious scene. Satan and the two emperors opening their mouths and frogs coming out. Now, Part of the humor here comes from the plague of frogs in Exodus 7.26-8.11. And if you remember that story, Aaron, he calls these frogs of Egypt to arise from the waters and they end up covering the land. And then the magicians of Pharaoh's court, they did the same exact thing. But in their ignorance, they created two problems. One, they added more frogs to the frogs that were already there. And two, they couldn't get the frogs to leave. So in Exodus 8.8, Pharaoh, he calls Moses and Aaron over and he begs them to get rid of the frogs. And he tells them that if they do, he'll let their people go. But you see the humor there, right? Pharaoh and his magicians, they're shown to be complete imbeciles, complete idiots. Because in trying to prove a point, they actually make the situation worse for themselves. They perhaps double the frog count. And then when they realize what they've done, they're like, oh crap, what do we do now, Pharaoh? Right? Um, and Pharaoh tells them to get rid of these things, but they can't. Sorry, bro, we, we, we don't know that part of the magic trick, they tell him. But yeah, this kind of stinks. Maybe, they say, maybe go see if Moses and Aaron's gone. 
can do something about it. And so we have this pretty ironic and funny story sitting behind the passage in Revelation, but there's a little bit more. Revelation 12, right, through the, through the first half of Revelation 16. Revelation 12 through the first half of 16, th these verses seem a bit frightening and terrifying. But if we can go on to verse 6, 16, 14 here. It says that uh, these unclean spirits are the spirits of demons, that they're a deceptive sign. Right? They're also used uh, to lure the kings dwelling in the whole inhabited world to gather for battle, to gather, gather for war. In other words, Nero's successor, Domitian, he's in concert with Satan, he's taunting the nations to go to war against God and God's people. Now, the humor here comes from Psalm 2, 1 to 4. Those verses say, Why are the nations arrogant? And why do they plot in vain? The kings of the land stand upon the land, and the rulers gather together upon it, and against the Lord and his anointed one. Let us break their chains, and let us throw off their bonds. The one sitting in the sky laughs at them, and the Lord ridicules them. God here, he's making fun of the kings of the land. He's laughing at them. It's a hilarious picture. Earthly kings and earthly armies suiting up and trying to prepare in battle to fight God. They don't stand a chance. And so in Revelation 16, 13, with the frogs, we get one joke with a backstory. And in the following verse, 14, we get a tag, a, a sort of second joke that builds on that. And you know what? A healthy view of God's sovereignty is one that avoids the error of putting God and Satan on the same level playing field. It's wrong and wrong-headed to go about life thinking that God and Satan, they're sort of in this perpetual, never-ending, ongoing arm-wrestling match. Satan, he's simply outmatched. He's self-deluded, as are his minions and his followers. Satan stands no chance. Just like um, the image of earthly kings trying to, to fight in a war with God, stand no chance. The result has already been decided even though the game is still in process. But we know the end result, God wins. And he doesn't have to fight to win. Jesus simply speaks. And so there's another level to this joke about Satan, Nero, and Domitian having frogs come out of their mouths. It's a contrast with Jesus, who's depicted in Revelation, as having this sharp, double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. The sword, as we know, is symbolic of the call to repentance. It cuts both ways. Uh, it can be a blessing, uh, or it can be a, a sort of cursing. Uh, but this call to repentance is meaningful. It's a life-changing word. But it's a stark contrast with the meaningless croaking of Satan and these two emperors. And these stupid kings, how wise are they that they follow the sound of pointless croaking into battle against God? It's kind of hilarious. Is violence really the answer? Is war really the answer? They think it is. But Revelation is, is saying that it'll simply result in their ultimate downfall and their ultimate defeat. The nations descending into chaos and void of God's presence will simply slay one another. Live by the sword, die by the sword. And this is clear in 15. Jesus, as he said earlier in Revelation, mentions again that he's going to come suddenly, like a thief. This seems to be a nod to his second coming, but... It isn't saying that all of this is going to happen at his return. It's saying all this is about to happen. 
and that these first Christians, in the boiling pot of the judgment upon Rome, from whence God has withdrawn, need to remain vigilant, ready, and live honorably in the midst of hardship and in the midst of affliction. In fact, uh, hearing this story is a cue to laugh in the face of that hardship. God, hear me on this, God gives us permission to both mourn and laugh in the face of hardship. I uh, like how this scholar, Alex Gitterman, puts it. He says, To be able to laugh in the face of adversity and suffering releases tension. It provides hope, and it takes sadness and makes it sing. Laughing in the midst of hardship takes sadness and makes it sing. The Holocaust survivor Elie Wiesel once wrote, The truth comes into this world with two faces. One is sad with suffering, and the other laughs. But it's the same face, laughing or weeping. Sometimes laughter is the best medicine. Well, let's continue on. In 16, we get another play on words. It says, He gathered them in the place. Now, there are two things here. Uh, one, it isn't clear whether this is God gathering them, or Satan, or Nero, or Domitian. But since Domitian and League with Satan issued the frog call to battle, it seems like it's probably Satan. Right? Some translations get it completely wrong and say, they. And there's another very important aspect that translators get wrong here, translating the name of this place as Armageddon. You can see here, here in the text that I've translated as Mountain of the Hune, or we could just say Mount Hune, or Hune Mountain. But another way to do it would be to say Cut Down Mountain. This is yet another reference back to the Old Testament, and it has a little bit of a humorous jab to it. While many connect this with Mount Megiddo, a place where some battles occurred in the ancient world, the language actually, uh, I believe, suggests something different. And to help us get this, uh, I need to give a very short language lesson. Uh, so I want you to hang with me here, uh, even as I fight through the plague of flies that's coming upon me. But I think this language lesson will be worth it. First of all, we need to know that there's a difference between the word translation and transliteration. Right? Translation of a word is different than a transliteration of a word. And that, by the way, is our word of the week, transliteration. Now, as you know, a translation is when we take a word in one language and match it with a word in another language. If we translate uh, English, thanks, uh, into Hawaiian, for example, we get mahalo. Um, that's a translation, word for word. A transliteration, however, is different. So if a translation is a word-for-word -word exchange across languages, then uh, a transliteration is a letter-for-letter -letter exchange across languages. So consider our English word Mary, M-E-R-R-Y, as in Merry Christmas. Um, if we wanted not to translate, but to transliterate, and you can kind of see that and hear that word letter in transliterate, transliterate is kind of what you can say. But if we wanted to transliterate the English word Mary, as in Merry Christmas, into Hawaiian, things actually become really interesting. Why? Because Hawaiian doesn't have the letters R or Y. But the linguistic rule is this. If you have R in English, replace it with L in Hawaiian. So the double R simply gets replaced just by a single L in Hawaiian. And uh, we replace that Y on the end of Mary uh, with an E or an I in Hawaiian. In this case, it's an E. 
So English Mary is transliterated into Hawaiian as Mele. And that's uh, a letter-for-letter letter exchange across languages. Mele is a transliter transliteration of Mary, not a translation. And the same sorts of rules apply for Kalikimaka, which is not a translation of the word Christmas, but a transliteration, a letter-for-letter letter exchange. All right, now, if you understand that, let's talk just for a minute about the Greek and Hebrew here. Don't fall out. Uh, you're smart enough to handle this. It's not difficult. It's super important. Okay, many English versions of Scripture make a mistake here. Instead of translating the Greek of Revelation 16.16, 16, they transliterate, and they fall into an error there. They take the Greek, and they simply do a letter-for-letter letter exchange into English, resulting in this word Armageddon. But they shouldn't be transliterating. They should be translating. And they should be, uh, and that, that's where Hebrew, actually, that underlies the Greek, comes in. Right? So there's, in fact, two Hebrew words here. Now stick with me. The har, or ar part of the word, armageddon, in Hebrew is har. And it means mount or mountain. The second part is megadun. And so what we have so far is mount megadun. But there's more to this. Um, the scholar named Johannin has pointed out uh, in his research that that second part, uh, Megadun, has as its root the Hebrew word Gadah. You can hear it in there. As the Hebrew word, uh, this Hebrew word Gadah, it's found in a number of different places in the Old Testament. But there are a couple that are really important, namely Isaiah 14:12-13 and Jeremiah 50:23. Gadah appears in both of those verses in Hebrew. And in both verses, very interestingly, Babylon is being talked about. Even more, Babylon is being talked about as a place to be cut down, Gadah, or hewn. And that's what Gadah means, cut down, or hewn, or hew. And so there's this awesome wordplay that we miss if we don't pay attention uh, to much of the underlying language stuff going on here in Revelation 16. So here's the takeaway. One, English Armageddon, that word, is a transliteration. And two, a transliter that transliteration is wrong. It should be a translation, a word-for-word -word meaning. Um, and so, uh, th this translation based on the Hebrew should be Mount Hewn, or Mountain of the Hewn. And that's what this whole section is talking about. Babylon, that is Rome, being cut down, or hewn. In fact, just four verses down, in verse 20, we read that every island fled and no mountain could be found. Cut down, hewn. That is, Babylon or Rome could not be found. Its end will have been met. Uh, it's on its way there to its end. It's being brought down to size, right? Uh, it's being cut down. And that cut down mountain, it should stand as a sort of contrast with Mount Zion which we read about in Revelation 14.1. Mount Zion being patterned on Eden is the place of God's presence. Unlike this desolate place, Babylon or Rome, empty now of God's presence. And in 17, the spear he shows up and he empties the seventh vial and Jesus speaks saying, it has occurred. He's talking about the, the completeness or the fullness of God's wrath being poured out on Rome. This The, the last... Um, the last plagues have occurred. That's what has occurred. And in verse 18, we read of the standard symbol of judgment in Revelation, like I just talked about, lightnings and sounds and thunders and earthquakes. And in 19, uh, we learned that this judgment was so rough that it crippled the Roman Empire, uh, splitting it in pieces like an earthquake. 
now we don't need to look for a historical uh, evidence of that as he's using figurative language here um, John says that this was God giving Rome uh, the cup of the wine of the anger of his wrath God didn't forget to do this either he remembered he remembered Rome's desire to be apart from him to withdraw from him and to be distant from him indeed again as 20 says every island fled Right? It wanted to be away from God. You remember, um, John, he may have been on the island of Patmos in exile while writing this. In which case, we may suggest that there will be no more exile under the Roman Empire. Another sort of exodus theme. And thus, no longer was the city that we're going to read about on seven hills or seven mountains, no longer was it Har Magadah, Mount Hume, as uh, 21 says. It, it was no longer found. Uh, later in Revelation. And so the plagues occurred. It occurred. And that was Rome's problem. It's liability. This was the start of its fall from God. Now, again, while we can try to look for actual historical precursors to these events, we don't necessarily need to do this. John's not talking about the literal or the ultimate or end uh, of Rome, the, the sort of ultimate fall of Rome as we talk about throughout history when Rome fell. He's not talking about that. John's talking about Rome's fall from God in the first century, when God poured out His wrath on her. This is their downfall. We get another picture of that judgment in 1621 with this hail raining down. But there's a curious line there too. In spite of all this, just like Pharaoh, the people still blaspheme God. In spite of all the plagues they've experienced, they go on rejecting and blaspheming God. Their arrogance and stupidity is on full display. They're reduced to frogs, senseless, croaking, and they, like Pharaoh, still believe they can defeat God, and he simply laughs in the face of their opposition, which is really no opposition at all. Now, let me make just a, a few points here. First, if, if you have a high view of God's sovereignty, and I would recommend that, uh, then you know that there is, as I said, really no true opposition to God. Humans pose no threat to God. Likewise, Satan poses no real threat to God. You see, many buy into this dualistic or two-sided worldview where God and Satan are always like duking it out as if they're on the same label, as if God is actually under threat. And the other aspect of that is that you get this view that sort of Satan's full-time job is leading people into all sorts of immoralities. But let me suggest an alternative view for you, an alternative sort of worldview in that regard. It's this, that humans, um, humans choose immoralities. Right? Satan's chief job, friends, is not leading people into immoralities. It's leading them away from Jesus and his teachings. That is, leading them, the way of, leading them away from the false gospel into a false gospel, which, as Paul says in Galatians, is really no gospel at all. It's really no good news at all. Satan's chief job is undermining, undercutting the gospel. What's the gospel? It's simply this, that Jesus is king. That's really what it boils down to in a nutshell. Satan's chief job is undermining that fact that Jesus is king and attempting to lure people into a false gospel or a false teaching. And then, once the false teaching is embraced, Jesus becomes irrelevant. And perhaps, as we've seen in Revelation, he becomes even an enemy. And so, they, let's get rid of him. Let's get Jesus out of the picture. We're seeing some of that these days. And then, once Jesus is out of the picture, all sorts of immoralities and chaotic things 
ensue. Right? Sin, which I define as treason against God, isn't always an act of colluding with Satan either. Sin can be yielding to oneself, to one's own desires, submitting to societal pressures. And, and so a major point I want you to get is this. We need not live in fear that the world's stuck in this perpetual battle of spiritual warfare and Satan's always after us. Satan stands no chance. To live in that kind of fear is nonsensical. It robs the resurrection alive in us of its story. And speaking of battle, another point is this. Many have gotten Armageddon all wrong. As scripture says, if we just look closely, Armageddon 1 is not an event. It's a place. Um, it's not an end time war event. It's a place. It's a mountain. And two, it's a cut down mountain. So enough about the end time Armageddon event, right? Scripture doesn't teach that. But again, victoriously, Revelation gives us a picture of Mount Zion, which is patterned on Eden and represents the fullness of God's presence. And here's a truth that I want you to grasp onto. God's promise isn't a place. It's a person in a place. Right? Sometimes we get so wrapped up in this heaven language, thinking especially that God's promise is a place. But that too is wrong. The Christian's promise is a person in a place. Jesus in God's presence or in the full presence of God through Jesus. That's our promise. That's what should shape everything about us. That should give us undying hope. You know, I started with a news story about um, that the porta potty, right? But I want to end with another news story. This one, however, isn't from 2020. It's from four years ago, 2016. So maybe you've actually heard it. It's a story of this skydiver named Luke Aiken. He jumped out of this plane at 25,000 feet. They call it a halo jump. He jumped out without a parachute. It was the first time this had ever been done. And his means of landing was this massive double net structure on the ground in Simi Valley, California. Three others, all with parachutes, jumped out without him. One was filming and so was following him um, with colored... Uh, one was filming, right? And one was also following him with a um, can of... Uh, smoke. It was colored. And so people on the ground could see the smoke trail and see where everybody was. Um, and another one was following because he had to jump with a mask on so he would hand his mask off to that third person uh, once he got to a low enough altitude to take it off. But the whole scene is kind of crazy and it's also inspiring. But one thing that stuck out to me about Aiken's story is how he would find that net structure to land in on the ground. So he wore this helmet with a GPS structure on it and it communicated with the net structure below on the ground. And uh, around the net, there were all, all kinds of lights. And if he was on course with the GPS track that his team had plotted, then the lights down around uh, the net, they would shine uh, a bright white color. But if he was off course, uh, the lights, they would turn red. And so he had this mnemonic device, red dead, white all right. Literally, he had no choice but to follow the light or not. Doing so meant living and setting a record, but not doing so meant a certain death. And of course, he lived. He lived by following the light. And this week, I want to encourage you to do the same, to follow our light, Jesus. He'll lead you away from death and into life. He'll get you through 2020. He'll get you through the stupid virus. He'll get you through whatever it is that's meeting you head on and challenging you. And maybe, just maybe, he'll have a laugh with you 
as you laugh together in the face of hardship and sing through the adversity. Look to Jesus, friends. He is the light. Amen? Amen. Well, if you would, turn your palms upright and receive this benediction. And now, may you be in the light as He is in the light. And may you shine like the stars in the heavens. And of all the wants that you have in this life, may you want more than anything to be in the light. Amen, brothers and sisters. Go in peace and shine.